It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is where we bring together uh, some award-winning journalists from all over the East End to talk about uh, the news headlines of the week and do a little bit of a deeper dive. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website's 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who's managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. And uh, as always, a great panel today. We have Ambrose Clancy, who is the editor of the Shelter Island Reporter. Hey, Ambrose, good to see you. Good morning, Joe. Morning, all. Brian Cosgrove, who is the host of the Afternoon Ramble right here on WLIWFM. How you doing, Brian? Oh, we can't hear you, Brian. Can't hear me? There we go. There now we can. Yeah, we lost you for a second. We got to make sure we got you. Audio. Yep. You're all about audio. We got to make sure your audio is good. Yep. And we have Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Good morning. Hey. Good morning, everybody. So it's probably a good place to start, Brian, to talk about the radio station WLIW. And there's actually some news. We may have some new listeners uh, this morning that we haven't had in the past, right? Because of some some developments at WLIW FM. Yeah, yeah, we got a uh, another frequency along with 88.3, which we've been on for decades for the East End and Southern Connecticut. We signed on last week on 96.9, which is located in Farmingville. So we're on both frequencies now, 88.3 and 96.9. And we are getting to, I haven't had a chance to drive west yet, but from what I understand, we're about 70 to 80% now covering Suffolk County with wow. the new frequency. So um, we're, we're pretty excited about that because what we offer, as you guys know, your program and a lot of interesting, diverse programming that we think folks will enjoy uh, further west into uh, central and western Suffolk. And the one little bit of a you know confusing thing to some folks, and, and I understand, is that you know, we've got, um, we're on the new frequency again is 96.9 and um, WEHM has 96.9 and 92.9. And I would just quickly say that there are two different 96.9s. Uh, EHM, who I used to, where I used to work, uh, which is just a great station and, and I love it. 96.9 for EHM, they're located, that frequency is located in East Hampton. And as I mentioned, our 96.9 is located in Farmingville. So there's no problem, there's no conflict. It's just that the frequencies are the same. And I've gotten a fair amount of messages from folks like, well, does that mean that EHM is not on anymore or you know, whatever? No, it doesn't. They're two separate 96.9s and we can all Live in harmony on 96.9. <laughs> the, the hostile takeover, not really something that, that public radio is known for. No. Uh, yeah. Yes, no, absolutely not. But it's a very it's a, it's, a, it's a very exciting thing because, you know, we we hope to, uh, you know, it's it's the further, as you, all you guys know, the further west you go, the denser the population. So we know that, uh, you know, in the area that this 96.9 is covering in a good chunk of central and western Suffolk, could theoretically double the folks who listen to us because of how dense it is up there. So yeah, excited. that's very exciting. That's exciting really all around. Yeah. So, so welcome to our, our new Western Suffolk County listeners. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. this, this is a we generally have a conversation about what's going on on the East End. And obviously, the, the issues tend to be pretty regional, uh, but they also tend to be very local, too. And I, I think that the, the, the issues that we each of our communities see, we see them in all the communities. And I think those same issues extend to the West, which is a nice lead in Ambrose to what's going on in uh, shelter on Shelter Island right now. Uh, what's the big story over there? The big story is clean water, and it has been for years. And as you said, I think it's that's pretty much of a regional issue. It's um, drinking water on Shelter Island, almost 90, more than 90% come from wells. And the problem is that Shelter Island has a single source aquifer, and the it's being poisoned by nitrates mm. from, from sewage. Um, you know, Shelter Island for years, um, a septic tank was a pipe running from your house into a hole in the ground in the backyard. Um, and then septic tanks came in and they weren't very efficient. Now, um, with county grants and town grants, they're getting state of the art septic tanks, but still it's a major problem. And the town proposed a uh, $3.8 million solution, they thought, to the center of town where the most use is, is there. They have the municipal buildings, the police headquarters, the firehouse, the school, uh, the public library. And so uh, consultants, outside consultants were hired and they had a plan to pipe the effluent from the center of town where all these buildings are to um, Klenowickis Airfield, which is some people call it Klenowickis uh, International Airfield. Uh, <laughs> it's an airstrip, uh, <laughs> grass airstrip, and it's very beautiful and it's very shelter island. Um, and the town bought this out of community preservation funds uh, and you know the program that's uh, county and town real estate tax. Uh, 34 acres, and they paid $7.7 million for it. Uh, and it's a real jewel of Shelter Island. And so the consultants were looked at other places and they said, this is the place. We're going to pump this, this effluent from the center, build a uh, wastewater facility under the airfield, and all problems will be solved. Um, under the airfield? Under the airfield, it's going to be a wastewater treatment center under the airfield. Hmm. How does that How does that work, Ambrose? Well, I'm not a I'm not a consultant. I play one on the radio, but uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Um, anyway, the people around the the uh, airfield are up in arms about this, and they have some real argument about it. We've done we did stories when this was proposed about it has a history of flooding, of bad flooding in one part of the uh. airfield. Um, also, uh, if any, and as you you might know, uh, I don't know if our listeners know that the community preservation funds, part of it is to preserve open space so it's not paved over, but also to keep aquifers clean. Um, so it's, it's the town and the consultants have come back and said, it's not a done deal yet. And that's due, I think, probably to uh, citizen advocacy. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm sure you have. The pandemic has done one thing, one great thing for civic involvement is Zoom, Zoom meetings. Uh, mm -hmm. It used to be you would go to a town board meeting on Shelter Island, and it would be me or a reporter and a couple of people. 
Now, you know, people are zooming in on issues that they're, they're interested in because they don't have to leave their house. They don't have to be seen. So, and it's, it's been, there's been a drumbeat of you got to do something about clean water, but this is not the place for it. Um, is it because it's a CPF um, preserved site? Is that also is that our, the- our committee on Shelter Island, the CPF committee, they're also weighing in really heavily against this idea. Uh, and they're proposing it, other spots and there seem to be other places for for this facility, which is a, a good thing. I mean, to-, what, to what's, the di- what's, what's the distance between between the um, developed area and, and the airfield? It's, it's rather short. Um, I would say maybe two, three miles at most. It's still can't, a lot. Can't yeah. be sure about that. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's. Uh, I would say if I had to bet that it's not going to happen there, and it's not going to happen there because of you know people getting involved. Um, we've also well, editorialized on it. We've covered it. We've editorialized on it. Of our editorials have basically been slow down. Uh, you know, let's let's really look at this. Are there other places for this uh, facility? It speaks to the way that the CPF has evolved over the last 10 years or so. You mentioned that we added a whole component to the CPF where some of the money is now being used for water projects. And this is a perfect example of where that comes into conflict with the original purpose of the CPFs. You know, the whole point is you don't want to use a preserved piece of property to build any kind of industrial thing on to try and deal with the water problem. It, but at the same time, it's an equally important uh, issue to address the water quality. This is where it, where it starts to get tricky. Yeah, we, I looked at, at the, the original uh, purchase uh, documents and one of the, you know, they're right at the top is to protect our aquifer to, you know, these, these 34 acres of grassland uh, and one of the reasons was is to protect the aquifer. Uh, putting a building a wastewater facility underneath it, I don't know if that's that's going to do that. Um, Can I ask example, a question? Sure. Um, so this is not like technically a sewage treatment plant, but uh, like a community septic system. Yes. Like one of these newfangled um, advanced yeah. wastewater treatment. Exactly. And the other thing that I I failed to mention is that when this was first proposed and this area, this area was chosen, not chosen, but but seemed to be the best place, according to the consultants, was that there is room there to expand this wastewater, Uh which got everybody else, people Mm -hmm. even, you know, very far away from Klenowicus Airfield involved in this. Like, how big is it going to be? Is it going to be for the entire island? Uh, those questions still remain. This is really interesting, too, because one when you talk about a CPF purchase for an airstrip that, that is a, a grass airstrip, but you could argue that that's already developed as a grass airstrip, even though it's an open field, it, it's being used for a, a, an industrial purpose already. Well, industrial is is a stretch, I would think. I mean, these are Piper Cubs. Um, the um, the police department, fire department uses it for if, when they have to medevac people out. For you know, the county comes in. There are very very few structures uh, out around or near uh, the airfield. I think there are a couple of small hangars. Um, it's. Um, 
it, it's as I said, it, it you look at it, it's it's pristine, it's very beautiful. It's um it's a beautiful open space. And when the purchase was made, that was put into the agreement that the it's being run by the Shelter Island Pilots Association, uh, and they can land and take off. So hmm. so if I could um I'm oh, sorry. I, could no, I could ahead. I take uh, Bill Bill Sutton's role as devil's advocate here? Absolutely. He's, <laughs> um, are you willing to share, Bill? He's going to probably say no. No, I, no. I think Denise is good at that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm just wondering: Is there any place on Shelter Island that would not get a "We don't want this here. This is the wrong place for it" from nearby residents? Like, I mean, who wants to have a community septic system? anywhere near their home, really. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, That's that's I, I, you know, looking in my crystal ball, I I see that. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I don't know if it will be as fervent, you know, a no, uh, I'm not sure. There are there are other places there's that the town owns um, that are undeveloped um, and uh, I'm not sure, but, you know, stay tuned. You know, part of the problem, Ambrose, I feel like when we talk about septics these days, which we do a lot, <laughs> um, uh, it, it feels like uh, we don't know what we're talking about a lot of the time because I have no idea what these facilities even look like anymore. The, they evolve so much. And in the last few years, the, the IA systems that they're introducing, uh, which are sort of for individual properties, I mean, I, I'm not sure what the footprint of a newfangled septic system would look like. I don't know what the impacts would be on neighbors. I don't know what the visual impact is. It's very, it's very difficult to sort of measure that, isn't it? Because it's changing all the time. Yeah, absolutely. The IA systems that I've seen, uh, the visual impact is is really minimum uh, that I've seen. Um, but yeah, the the inner workings. It's uh, after all, Joe. It's sewage. We don't want to really, you know, <laughs> humans don't want to get into the the, the weeds on this uh, too much. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, th- but this is also a problem we're all going to be discussing, Denise, across the whole region, right? Because uh, septic systems are still fairly limited uh, on the east end. Well, there are. I mean. First of all, these new these new IA systems are now like mandated by county regulation and law for you know any any kind of a certain percentage of expansion for all new construction, right. et cetera, for residential uh, uh, uses. And um, you know, I mean, let's face it, this is something that we really absolutely need to come to terms with. I mean, we're going to be drowning in our own, you know. Excellent. Affluent. <laughs> Affluent. Um, let's, go without, let's go without fluent. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, it's like, it's something that it's, it's a very serious problem. I mean, we have, we all live above our drinking water supply and we're all, you know, kind of, you know, flushing the toilet into our drinking water supply is what it comes down to. Um, and so we need to be able to um, deal with it in a way that, that makes sense and protects the water supply. Um Michael uh, Reichel, our sewage super, district superintendent here said, you know, everybody just wants to flush it and forget it. And it's true. That's what we all want to want to flush it and forget it. And, um, I, you know, it's it's actually a fascinating subject. But, you know, it, it's also really only one source of nitrates that are polluting our water supply. And a, a 
at, at a source that's at least as big as that is, is fertilizers, lawn fertilizers, yes, not right. even farmer fertilizers, but lawn fertilizers. And I, there's just I, there's just not enough done about that. Mm. You know, they've made some attempts to, um, you know, limit the timing of fertilizing and things like that. But, you know, there are still, you know, those big, expansive green lawns are, you know, really poisoning our water as well. And so we, I feel like we really need to address that too. Um, uh, one note on so. uh, one note on nomenclature uh, effluent. Uh, I've taken so much time editing letters to the editor, trying to f- weed out their words, <laughs> the, the reader's words, describing what's going on. <laughs> effluent seems to be the. You see a lot of rising effluent in the letters to the editor. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that's that's uh, well, effluent is what's left over after treatment, right? Oh, I mean, that's oh. that's what effluent is. On the way in, it's excrement comes out as effluent. <laughs> what's um, interesting too is the effluent sometimes is is close to drinking water standards, and even that, in some cases. Uh, I know that we've we've written about the fact that in some of the more delicate ecosystems, even drinking water quality isn't clean enough uh, to be discharged into the into the environment. I, the other thing this raises, and uh, you know, it may be taking a bit of a leap, but you know, when when the Community Preservation Fund was enacted in 1999, uh, I, I don't think there's any way to judge that except as a complete and overwhelming success. And I don't think at the time any of the architects pictured it is bringing in the kind of revenue. I mean, it's approaching $2 billion uh, of total revenue for the five East End towns since its enactment. Um, And that did a lot of preservation on the East End. There's no question. And And it changed and I think preserved the East End in a lot of ways. But I think we're now running into a time period where we see that it's not a panacea. It didn't solve all of the problems that we have on the East End, and it actually created some new ones. And Brian, we're always talking about affordable housing, and I'm sort of intrigued. There's there's a lot of folks out there whose argument is, well, we should use some of the community preservation fund money for affordable housing, which would actually be 180 degrees from its original purpose. The, the original purpose was to restrict development, and, and so to use some of that money for affordable housing just doesn't seem appropriate, however important it is for the affordable housing to get built too. But this all gets really complicated, doesn't it? I mean, the CPF didn't solve our, our biggest problems on the East End. The, the, the pollution, the lack of affordable housing, these are all issues that maybe that remain and maybe got even a little tougher because of the CPF. That, uh, you know, the, but at the same time, though, if they if they were to use it for affordable housing, they could also have more of a say on how the affordable housing gets done. And affordable housing is got to be addressed. And this could be, a, you know, I would think they should they should delve. They should definitely delve into that subject because it's a huge problem, as you guys all know. Yeah, well, Bill, we this is going to be a big year for affordable housing, right? Because we do have a measure on the table now to create the community housing fund, which is sort of patterned on the CPF, but it would generate revenue for affordable housing projects in the five East End towns. But each of those five towns this year has to come up with a plan for how they'd spend that money, and then they have to put it before voters. This isn't a layup quite at the level of the CPF um, even though I think everybody agrees it's an important issue. 
Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think you know people will point to the the success of the CPF in 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 how much money it, it's raised, and and we'll look at that. And and I think I haven't met one person on the East End who says no, we don't need affordable housing. So I mean, if this is if this is one way to to provide some funds and some idea moving forward with affordable housing, then then I think people will will support it. But you know, maybe more so on the on the South Shore than uh, you know than than Riverhead area, which has its own um, unique issues, uh, you know, with with school district population and 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 taxes and and all that. Um, so so it'll be interesting to see how it works. But um, I yeah I, I see it as um is probably being being approved um you know uh handily um but you're right what what you do with that money once that money starts flowing in is, is important and we haven't heard a lot from the towns on on their plans and what they expect to do that doesn't mean they're not working on it and i imagine they've been they've been working on on plans at least in southampton and east hampton um, for years, as as this as Fred Thiel's bill, um, you know, was being, um, you know, proposed at the state legislature uh, level and, and all that. And, and I imagine you will you will soon see, you know, pretty comprehensive plans on what they would do with this money. Certainly, it's not going to be enough early on and you're not going to see some dramatic change if, it, if it's approved by voters. You're not going to see the the affordable housing crisis solved overnight. It's going to take years, just like the CPF took years to to generate, you know, the two billion dollars and you know and all the open space and parkland purchases and and all that. Um, but but I imagine they're working on plans and, and you'll see some different ideas. I think probably those plans have been floating around for a while. But sure. the idea was we don't have any money. And, right. and now you might have the possibility of a source of money. Ambrose, you were going to say something? Yes, I think uh, Bill said that you, you won't run into anybody who is against it. Uh, on Chilter Island, there, there, is, there are people who are very much against it. In fact, um, they're the Community Housing Committee, which, uh, as you were saying, Joe, is you know, uh, tasked with coming up with a plan. Um, there was a member who uh, basically said, in fact, he was quoted as saying, you know, if you don't have the money to live here, you can't live here. Uh -huh. uh, he was on the committee and, and kind of blew up where the town said, um, you know, you're to be on this committee to find a, a way to get community housing, not to be opposed to it. So he was kicked off the committee. Uh, mm. And that's a that's of course like in other towns, it is a really big issue. Not everybody is is lined up, you know, to yeah. get affordable housing. Yeah, I wonder. Each, and, each and town is different, right? I mean, you've got to look at it that yeah, way. Sure, exactly. Sure. I think Bill made the point, Denise. I don't know that it's a layup in in Riverhead, right? Because you guys have already. I would had... predict. I would predict it's not. It's not going to go anywhere. Actually, based on what I've heard from what little discussion publicly there's been of it. Uh, in town hall, you know, the, the thinking is, you know, we ha we're we have enough affordable housing. We're providing affordable housing for the East End. Like we're providing housing for the workforce for the East End is the thinking between uh, the new rental apartments that are going up and just other housing that, um, you know, is more affordable compared to other places. And, um, you know, that's the, the trade parade. 
uh, with, with, with the start, well, in a lot of cases, the start and end of the trade parade back and forth. And I don't think the town really is going to is going to go for setting that up here. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, and that's, so I mean, that's it. And that's a big part of why the school district has, you know, it's like the only school district that's growing because we've got, you know, young working people who are, you know, starting families uh, who, who work, who, who live in, in Riverhead and work elsewhere. So. Um, I, 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 this is a shot in the dark and I don't know what the rules are or would be, or if this would be possible, but I'm wondering if, um, if, some of that money could be used to offset some property taxes or to filter into the school district um, to help with population issues, to help with with, you know, growing space in the school district or whatever. I, I would think that 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 would be one way that maybe Riverhead could could address the affordable housing, because, as you say, there are, you know, uh, of the five uh, of, of the area, I think, you know, there's more affordable housing in Riverhead than than anywhere else, but it does have its its, you know, issues. I, wonder I think too the way it's written, that wouldn't be doable. That's not allowed. It would have to be, I think it would have to be amended, but I'm not sure. I think it was, okay. what what may happen, too, is that East Hampton and South Hampton towns in particular, when they start to put out ideas for how they would spend this money, and it starts to look like, you know, here, we're going to help first-time home buyers. We're going to help uh, firefighters and, and teachers and, and police officers. When you start to see how this money would be used, it may be an easier pitch then. I think it, it may be, Brian, it may be an easier sell to the public when when there's some details about how this money would be spent. But that's where it's on the towns to come up with a plan to pitch right now. Yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. And uh, I was yesterday, I actually when I was online on a couple social media, different places, I saw two year round rentals. One was I'm not sure it was South Fork, East End. I don't know if it was Amagansett, East Hampton. It was almost three grand a month. Mm -hmm. It was just like a one bedroom, right? It was twenty nine hundred. And some people mocked it. Other people were like personal message me. You know, they were all on top of it. And then there was one in Flanders for twenty three hundred huh. a one bedroom. So, you know, it's just. It's crazy. You know, I'm I wonder if it used to be there was a whole sort of underground economy of year-round rentals that were available only by word of mouth. And people people would rent those out to, to local, real local people. Like, for instance, you know, some reporters who were hired for the local newspaper would be able to find affordable rentals because they were word of mouth rentals. They were very picky about who they rented to. I'm not sure that exists anymore because everybody can make so much more money just putting any rental out on the open market. Uh, it's a, it's a real, it's certainly a crisis. We've talked about it here uh, many times, and I think it's going to be a big issue uh, in the year coming as we start looking towards this community housing fund and what happens with it. This is uh, Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm your co-host uh, with Bill Sutton. We are with the Express News Group. Uh, our guest today, Ambrose Clancy, uh, from the Shelter Island Reporter, Denise Civiletti uh, for Riverhead Local, and Brian Cosgrove from right here at WLIWFM. Denise, over, uh, well, this is actually a real region, regional conversation. Uh, big news this week about the first district U.S. House seat. Uh, because of the census uh, that was completed recently, 
we had to redraw lines in New York to make up for losing a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. That meant reconsidering all of the borders for all of the districts. But I'm not sure anybody saw this coming about how severely the lines have changed in the first district in the U.S. House of Representatives. Currently, uh, Lee Zeldin holds that seat, represents the entire East End. But that changed pretty drastically, or it's going to change pretty drastically going forward. It sure looks that way. Um, the um, so I mean the, the backdrop of this is that you know they created this independent redistricting commission by constitutional amendment. I think it was like uh, it might have been Fred Beal's baby after the last uh, political redistricting, um, and that went into place after the last, in 2014, after the last redistricting was done. And the idea was this was gonna be a bipartisan effort and it was gonna like take politics out of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so um, the, the Independent Redistricting Commission had four Republicans and four Democrats on it. And of course, you know, predictably, I would say they could not agree on maps. And so they ended up after many, many hearings across the state and a lot of arguing back and forth and press releases being, you know, shooting around. They ended up uh, presenting two sets of maps to the state legislature, the Democratic maps and the Republican maps. And the uh, state legislature rejected them and took it upon themselves, as they're allowed to do to that, in that position, to uh, draw their own maps. And since there is a Democratic majority, it, it's the the task force that existed for redistricting before this independent commission um, took it over. And um, that was dominated like four to two by Democrats. And they came up with these new maps, which were uh, forthwith adopted by the Democratic uh, controlled uh, state legislature. And um, the bottom line for CD1 is the way they, the bottom line is the way they move the lines around. Um, according to the Cook Political Report, which does this kind of analysis, um, it, it flips New York one from a district that was plus four for Trump in 2020 election to a plus 11 for Biden. Um, solidly blue, right? Based on, yeah, it seems to be pretty solidly blue. Now, I guess it remains to be seen what happened. Now, again, this is based on what would have, what the result they said would have occurred in 2020. Um, I don't know now. I mean, again, they're doing the, the state legislative districts now in the same manner. And those boundaries came out and it was nothing as dramatic as this, up, except for um, Riverhead is now divorced from the East End in the assembly. Um, the second assembly district starts at the uh, Southall town line and goes west, which is something that was proposed in 2012, but got uh, torpedoed. Um, the South Pole town supervisor is really unhappy being thrown in with the South Fork. He said, you know, two different sets of interests. We're going to get lost in the shuffle, et cetera. Um, but we expect those will be adopted if they weren't already yesterday. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. Um, but, you know, these things happen when it comes time to reapportion and the party in charge, you know, ha has the fun. So let's, um, yeah, let's, let's break this down, Denise. This was, I think it's fair to say this was a clear case of gerrymandering, right? This was the Democrats in, in Albany having the ability to draw the lines to their political benefit. That's no not illegal. 
right? No question. That's that's not illegal. Um, there are lines that you can't uh, draw based on um, discriminate, you know, racial discrimination. You can't do racial gerrymandering, but you can do political gerrymandering. And if you look at how they rearranged uh, the the second congressional district, you could see it, it's pretty clear <laughs> what they did. Um, I so, thought that uh, was yeah. I thought that was a lot that was more interesting almost than than the first district. The yeah. second district. Well, it really affected the first district, though. Right. Explain yeah. explain what they did with the second district. Denise. Well, it kind of snakes into what used to be the first district. It kind of goes up and around and, and just, you know, snakes east between, you know, and, and the first district then goes between the second and third districts and actually goes into Nassau County, which, you know, by uh, Oyster Bay, I think. Uh, yeah, it, really it goes as far west as yeah. it goes as far west as Oyster Bay. So the, the idea is to clump all of the Republican uh, voting districts together and vote and and all the Democratic voting districts in in the first district, right? Well, I don't know about all, but yeah, to create a, a majority Democrat. Now, I, what I was going to say is, I would love to have the time to because I'm sick, but to have the time to like <laughs> sit down yeah. and look at the yeah. the. Uh, election district by election district and look at the actual active voter enrollment um, for in each election district that now comprises the first congressional district. I'm sure somebody with a computer could do that a lot more efficiently, but um, I mean, not that I, ha I don't have a computer, but <laughs> I don't know how to do that with my computer, but, um, you know, because that will, I think, tell, tell the, tell the story, especially when it comes to the state races, because I'm not sure how predictive how people would have voted in, the, you know, or how the district would go in the 2020 election, how predictive that is with how they're going to vote in, let's say, you know, the assembly district, you know, next year, right. like, or, you know, later this year. So yeah, that would be interesting has, to see. It has a little less impact, I think, in those races. Yeah. But, I, you know, the, it's interesting just to, to break it down, the way it broke, the, the, the reason this happened was the Democrats in Albany have a supermajority in both the assembly and the Senate. And so that's what you need. You need to have a supermajority in the state legislature to approve the maps yourselves. And so I think the Republicans and Anthony Palumbo, uh, Bill, we had a story this week where the state senator uh, said it flat out that it was sort of what he expected to happen because the, the allegation now is that the Democrats who were on this bipartisan commission really just dragged their feet because oh, held it up. there was, yeah, there was no, there was no incentive to get a bipartisan map because they knew all along that the default was everything goes back to the state legislature. And that's where uh, the Democrats could draw the lines the way they, they saw fit. So this was sort of a fait accompli from the start. Right. You know, there's an old saying in politics to the victor goes the spoils. And, and so when you, when, when the 10, when the census comes around every 10 years, whoever is in power, you know, kind of redraws these lines. But I, I think Denise hit on something when when she was talking about, you know, the Southhold supervisor. And now you've got now you've got this second um, second congressional district, which is going to run from, you know, Western Suffolk or, or further all the way east into West Hampton, uh, Quag Hampton Bays, um, you know, and, and the, the, the current congressman, um, um, Andrew, 
Gabarino um, is 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 from Saville and, you know, and I'm he's a Republican and I'm sure he's a, he's a good guy and committed and, and and all that. But but what does he know about Hampton Bays and, and West Hampton and and Quag and, and you know, and the same thing with, with the first district, whoever that first district uh, congressman or congressperson is, um, you know, all the way from from the east end of Nassau County, it's very different communities and very different interests and, you know, very different uh, politics, um, you know, and municipalities and, and voters. And, and, you know, how does, how does one person represent that whole swath, um, you know, um, to the best interests of, of their constituents? I think it becomes harder. I, I, I understand the politics and, and you, you know, I, I read something. So, so there were like, you know, three or four districts that, that switched three more toward, you know, Democratic voters and, and one, I guess, the second district, um, you know, to, to the Republicans. And, and I understand all that, but there's got to be a measure of, of who's representing who in this as well. So it's, it's interesting. And it does go back and forth. I think both parties, and we're seeing it at the national level sure. in all of the redistricting processes, uh, gerrymandering is happening. And it's, it's sort of a game of chicken. So, you know, both sides have to do it. Uh, if you don't do it, you're just giving the other side a victory when when you had a chance to to change it. It doesn't make it right. And I think it's lamentable. I think what we ended up with with the first district and Ambrose, I, I got to ask you just flat out. What do you think? I'm curious whether Lee Zeldin saw this coming and this may be why. Uh, he decided to to undertake the more. Uh, he's got a little bit of a higher profile run for uh, governor of New York, even though I, I really do think his chances of winning are pretty slim. And I think everybody's uh, at the, at the state level has said that, but he, he probably saw this coming, the redistricting of the first district that would make it all but impossible for him to win re-election. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating, Joe. It's uh, he's, he's a very, uh, very astute, very clever politician. I would not be at all surprised that, that he looked into it and thought, uh, you know, I can't get reelected here. Um, so, uh, I'm going to make this, you know, chaotic seems to be, as you said, you know, run for, run for governor, but who knows? I mean, um, uh, who knows what's going to happen, you know, in the governor's race, uh, it's all, it's a long way away and it's all up in the air and whoever thought that Donald Trump would be elected president. I mean, you know, political analysis yeah. getting into reading entrails now. So, you know, I, I think I think Congressman Zeldin is a very attractive candidate in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, I definitely would not count him out. I think he's in a no lose situation, too. Even if yeah, he doesn't win this race, it, it raises his his uh, profile in a big way. Um, right. We're and, all and, East Enders here. Right. So, like, how would we feel if uh, a Democrat from Oyster Bay was a Democratic nominee. Right. I mean, you know, and if there were a Republican, let's say if there's such a thing anymore as a moderate Republican from, um, you know, a, a more eastern part of that district, I would take a good hard look at that person because there, there I feel was... like, I don't know that my interests would be represented or exactly. anybody's interests out here would be represented by somebody that yeah. far west. I mean, I look skeptically at, you know, um, 
There was, I'm not there was remembering a, his name, but the guy that ran against Bishop from, you know, he moved from New York City to like the westernmost portion of Smithtown oh, yeah. and ran against Bishop <sighs> twice. Uh, um, you know, or even, you know, uh, One of the, well, there, there was a, there was a, there was a press release on, on uh, Thursday, I believe. And I don't remember the person's name, honestly, and I don't remember um, their, their political party, but the press re release was, Hey, the first district lines have been um, redrawn to include my area. So I'm throwing my hat in, into the ring. And it was somebody from very Western uh, uh, Suffolk County. So that proves the point. You're going to, yeah. you're going to see a whole, a whole different, um, um set of people interested in running for that seat now it'd be a very different yeah. race yeah. than we've seen for sure one, so. one of the byproducts of of gerrymandering is going to be that it's going to mean more extreme uh positions uh from candidates in those districts because they have more of a base to work from so uh mm -hmm. i think it's i think it's a bad development for uh mm -hmm. the region in general but i also think it's part of a bigger problem uh, it's, un it's unfortunate that the bipartisan um, legislation and effort on, on redistricting didn't work. And, yeah. and I think that's got to be the focus, you know, across the country is is to, you know, to eliminate this back and forth every 10 years, depending on on who's in power and redrawing um, these lines, according to, to political party. It's got to be based more, I think, on communities and interest and, you know, and, and bipartisan and be a little more. Is there is there know, any way to create a nonpartisan redistricting commission? That, yeah. that would be my question. Like, how do you and appoint who, people who are nonpartisan? Who has like, any interest in that right now on either side, too? If you have the upper hand, you don't you don't want to yeah. you know, you want to use that upper hand. Yeah. And, well, and it's. Well, that's the problem. And that's why, you know, that's why it, it doesn't work. And to, ne to Denise's question, I, th I think you're right. When you when you have a committee that's split four to four and, and four of those people are in power, then they're, they're not going to try real hard to make it work, are they? I mean, because they want yeah. it to go to a different um, uh, different setup. It feeds into a larger conversation about how uh, diametrically opposed we've become politically in this country and the whole idea of compromise uh, doesn't seem to be in the cards uh, right now. It seems to feed into that. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Ambrose Clancy from the Shelter Island Reporter, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Brian Cosgrove from here at WLIWFM. Uh, Denise, you had an update this week about the tragic fire uh, that you had back in November uh, where there was a loss of life, but you, you had some important new information about uh, that situation this week. Yeah, the house fire on 2nd Street um, was a historic home dating back to about 1907, uh, had been um, divided into four apartments, including one on the third floor of this house. It was a very large house um, and had it went on fire and just went up like incredible the photos just take your breath away of that fire um but um five members of one family that lived in the third floor apartment were tra apparently trapped in that in that apartment and and perished in that fire on november 16th um and um through a foil request to the town um we learned that um the town although although the 
rental permits. Riverhead has a rental permit law. So you can, you're not supposed to rent a house or an apartment without a permit. And that requires, um, it's a two-year permit. And before it's issued, it requires an inspection by the Code Enforcement Division for a variety of things, and a lot of which are focused on fire safety. Um, and um, so they're, this, the owner of this uh, building who lived there, who lived in the first, on the on the first floor there, um, had rental permits right along. She owned a house for many years. And um, for one reason or another, um, they had expired March 7th, 2020, just as the pandemic was about to turn everything upside down. Um, and um, they were not renewed. Um, and it wasn't until um, three weeks before the fire in October of 2021, that the town code enforcement officers who had attempted to make contact with the woman, they sent a renewal notice out right away. And actually before the, the expiration of her permit, they sent renewal notices, but um, they didn't start any sort of um, prosecution until three weeks before this fire that, that they issued these uh, three summonses for the apartments that lacked permits. and. Um, they um, were re actually returnable in the town justice court on December 7th. Um, so that was, you know, um, Let me ask you, I, you know, looking through the records, like one on one visit to the site when they were trying to like, you know, get in touch with the landlord, a, uh, they made a, a, like two or three visits to the site and made phone calls. But um, the, the code enforcement officer uh, met a woman in the driveway and, you know, he recorded her name and everything. And she was a tenant. On, it, it was the, the woman who, who died in the fire along with her mm -hmm. two children and two nephews. Um, Let me but, ask this, um, just to, just to clarify, sorry. you said that the, the property owner sorry. didn't renew these rental permits, right? It's, it wasn't a case Correct. of the town revoking those no. permits. This is just the owner didn't renew them. So Correct. But but they continued to be rentals. You you talked about the the tragedy of the family that perished, the the lack of you said that essentially they were trapped in the fire. The lack of of egress from that apartment is that something that would be part of the conversation about whether there would be a rental permit given or not? Um, yeah, there's there's not a currently there's not a second means of a second means of egress required apparently, mm. um, and. One of the councilmen uh, who sits on the code revision committee says he's working on some revisions to the rental code that would require exactly that for third floor rentals, that there has to be, um, you know, like a fire escape, essentially. Um, Jody, Jody, uh, Jody, Jody Giglio is, is proposing uh, state legislation that would require sprinklers on third floors as well. Is that correct? Um, she's, she, I haven't seen it yet, but she told me that she was working on that. So. But those are two um, things that are not required right now. So correct. even even if that rental permit had been sought and the uh, the uh, review of the apartment had taken place, it's not necessarily uh, something that would have kept them from getting the rental permit, correct? So I mean, absolutely. And just to be clear, too, based on uh, some of the comments that I read on our social media on this story, um, you know, there is, there's absolutely no indication or evidence or inkling that there was any like um, building code violations or anything like that, you know, smoke, inoperable smoke detectors or, um, you know, doors that should have been locked, that should not have been locked that were that kind of thing. There were, there were no 
there was no known existing violations in this building. Um, there, there were a couple of, uh, I think, relatively minor things the last time it was inspected in, in 2018 before the last permit was issued, but um, those were rectified. So, I mean, I, you know, there's, there's no, there's nothing to say that this person, this owner was at fault. And, you know, to be clear, she has lost her, everything herself. And um, yeah, you know, it, it seems like this is, living alone. this is not necessarily about this particular property or this particular no. property. owner. it's a bigger question about Absolutely. the safety of affordable housing. Brian, Brian, I said, you know, you and I are always having the conversation about affordable housing. This is the the dark side of it as well. The more we talk about the need for affordable housing, you also have to keep in mind the importance of of keeping that housing safe. Because the problem is when you have um, situations that are some of them are legal rentals like this one, and some of them are. You have situations where you have a much bigger risk too. Uh, when you crowd people together in in apartment buildings and things, I mean, it's it's part of the equation with affordable housing. Yeah, yeah, and I think also the um, the fact when the pandemic hit, and this is as you guys know, it wasn't just the east end of Long Island; suburbia exploded across the country. Everybody who was in an urban area who had money decided if they were renting, they wanted to buy, and boy, did we see that happen out here on the east end of Long Island. So that also, the trades, it was good to be in the trade because a lot of people were buying second homes and then they wanted to renovate these homes. Um, Some of these homes were two, three family homes um, that were just, you know, everybody was given a, a lot of people, a lot of, as you guys know, a lot of year round rentals went by the wayside when the pandemic hit and a lot of these homes were sold to people who wanted to have a second house out here. So um, this, I, I thought about that when um, that tragic story, I remember when it broke and I was talking to you guys and talking to Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group about this family up on the top floor of this home in, in Riverhead. And, uh, you know, your heart breaks. I just, to think about it, it's so tragic. And then the second thing I thought of was, this is the situation that we're putting ourselves in even more so with affordable housing out here. We're forcing these situations, whether, you know, thank goodness that it sounds like these codes were met and this this house was, you know, legal, so to speak, for what they were doing in that particular house. But it is just such a tough place now to find affordable housing and situations like this are going to happen more and more if we don't address it. And Bill, we we see it all the time, right? In in Southampton town, uh, code enforcement finds Rental, and again, I don't think this is the case with the house in Riverhead, in the the apartment oh. complex in Riverhead. Um, but oh. I, we do see this happening in, in other places. Well, well, absolutely. But but and and to Brian's point too, I mean, the the pandemic just put a tremendous strain on on the municipalities on on code enforcement, and I don't know if that contributed to um you know to to the town not enforcing the lack of of the rental permit in the house in riverhead if if everybody's just so busy with you know like brian said all the the new construction and the renovations and 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 this and that and it just you know um you know these guys are just strained as as well and and overworked and and overburdened and as a result of of everything that happened from the pandemic and and i think we need to 
Riverhead's probably not different from other towns out here in that like they've got uh, like terrible staffing problems here. Right. Like, I, you know, they're just not enough. They added a couple of co- part time code enforcement officers. But for the longest time, they had like two people um, for the entire town. And, you know, fire marshals, they had only two fire marshals for the entire town who do all kinds of different kinds of inspections and stuff. So there's no way they can actually keep up with um, what needs to be done with the with the st- staffing levels that they have here. And I, I suspect that's the same everywhere on the East End. We have relatively you know, small governments relative to the population and the growth that's occurring. It's part of the conversation when we talk about affordable housing mm-hmm. question. And you know, it's a small thing, but I want to tip my hat to you, Denise. It was a, a great job of following up and filing the FOIL request and staying on that story and finding some new details this week. Uh, just, just a great job. Kudos to you. The, the cause of, thank you. Uh, the cause of the fire, unfortunately, is still not officially mm-hmm. determined. Um, the family of the people who died, uh, the sister of the woman there, uh, said that um, the, the Suffolk County police have told her that they suspect it was started by a, an improperly discarded cigarette when mm. one when uh, one of the one of the young men who lived in that third floor apartment, one of the nephews had a birthday and he had some friends over and they were kind of like hanging out on the porch downstairs. Mm. And um, a parent, uh, you know, that this is not official yet, but this is she says is what they're telling her. Um, just a just so, a terrible tragedy. Yeah, I, no I, question, I, you know, and it resonates still now. So, and it can happen anywhere to anyone. I think also. that's the thing that that, yeah. that the takeaway from it is that that's the risk yeah. when we talk about uh, the need for more affordable housing. The risk goes up as well too. Uh, we're out of time this week uh, on Behind the Headlines. I want to thank our panelists: Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Brian Cosgrove. WLIWFM and Ambrose Clancy of the Shelter Island Reporter. Thank you guys. Uh, and I also want to thank my co-host, Bill Sutton. Thanks, Bill. Always a pleasure. Uh, we, we, will see everybody, we will see everybody back here next week. Thank you again to the expanded audience we now have uh, on WLIW, folks who listen streaming, folks who listen to the podcast. Uh, we'll see you all next week. Thanks. Thanks.